Well, have you guys ever heard of Coco the gorilla? Coco the gorilla. We got some pictures you can put up on the screen. She's a gorilla that lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. And if you go online, if you Google her, you can find footage of Coco talking through sign languages, sign language with celebrities like Robin Williams and uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, this was a brilliant ape. She knew about uh, a thousand, I think it was like a thousand different words through sign that she learned over her 46-year lifetime. Well, one night, Coco was playing with this little toy. It was a toy cat, and she broke it. And the next morning, when her keeper, uh, Dr., what was her name? Dr. Penny Patterson, when her keeper signed, hey, what happened? Do you know what Coco did? She blamed one of the night attendants. (laughs) The gorilla blamed somebody else, one of her human keepers, for breaking this toy that she clearly broke. That is crazy. Why? Why did she do that? Where does that primal instinct to blame come from? This whole instinct to cover up. And then why are we so often tempted to do the exact same thing? Three years ago, we did a a series called The Blameless Project. And one of the things that I was personally convicted of back then was how quickly my own mind goes right to blame, how fast that happens. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to work at it. My mind just goes to blame lightning fast right away. Why? Why are we so quick to blame our circumstances when we're not eating the way we think we should or exercising the way we think we should? or saving the way we think we should, or studying the way we think we should, or giving the way we think we should, or calling our moms. Sorry, mom, haven't been calling you for a while. So why, why do we have blame? Why do we, why in our heads, like, here's why, right? Here's, here's why we don't do that. Why are we so quick to blame? Why are we so quick to blame when someone else gets the promotion, or when the other team wins, or when we don't do well on a test, or when something goes wrong, or when red lights and a train and construction make us late for a haircut? Why? Why is blame such a primal and instinctual response? And I'm not exaggerating with those words. Go ahead and look up primal. Look up its instinctual. That is blame. That Those words are so right on when it comes to blame. When we don't stop to question this primal blame instinct and we just react, things almost never get better. Almost never. And they almost always end up getting worse. Well, right now, we're doing something that we rarely ever do. Right now, we are circling back to a series that we did just three years ago. And here's why we're doing that. We're circling back because blame is a really, really big deal. We're also circling back because this is a topic that about 200 of our people now weren't there for. In fact, really quick show of hands, how many of you were not with us in 2020? Yeah, look at that. We got a whole bunch of people right here. Yeah, the 2020. So we have that. And then we're also circling back with new content that is going to make this more than a refresher. In fact, I'm going to be pointing you to a couple great resources that weren't available, um, at least not on our radar back when we did this three years ago. And a fourth reason why we're doing this is because we have unfinished business with this series. And we'll say more about that as the series goes on. Well, here's what we're going to do today. Today, we're going to talk about the origins of blame. Why is the impulse to blame so universal? Why does it happen so lightning fast? 
Why is the temptation to blame so strong? And what is on the line if we let our primal instincts just take over? Let's get started. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Blame goes back to the beginning. Did you know that almost everybody who traces blame back can trace it back to the dawn of humanity? And this is true whether you believe that there was a creator who created people in his image or whether you don't. We'll set aside the conversation about whose theories of how when life began have more evidence for them. Does evidence point to a creator who formed humans in his image? Does humanity evolve through evolutionary processes? Are we the result of some combination of both? Those are important questions, but we're going to set that aside because right now, what I want to do is I want to focus on this common ground that almost everybody who studies blame can agree upon. And that common ground is that blame goes back to the beginning. Many people believe that blame, it is a primitive attempt on the part of our brains to protect us. That we have this deep primal need to feel competent and a deep primal need to be liked. And so blame is a primitive attempt to protect our self-image and our social status. And those who believe in the evolutionary processes, they say it goes back to when we first, as, as these evolving creatures, started forming tribes. Tribes were essential for survival in the early days of the human race. And even in very primitive brains, there is a section of our brain that's got these little tiny sensors that get tripped whenever they think there's some sort of danger. And it triggers our fight or flight mess, um, uh, mechanisms uh, and these potential signaling potential threats faster than the speed of conscious thought. The same sensors that warn us that we're about to be eaten by a cave bear also warn us if our brain thinks that our status in the tribe might be in danger. So here's an example. Let's bring this back to Coco. Here's an example of someone who is studying Coco, studying blame. Here's what they said about this. Coco, like early humans, automatically blames someone else for her misstep because... She feared retribution and possibly rejection from her tribe. In this case, the group made up of her keepers. Our ancestors would have known that rejection by their tribe would have meant certain death. Even our primate predecessors learned the not-so-subtle art of pointing the finger of responsibility elsewhere. So there's this guy, Daniel Kahneman. He won a Nobel Prize for his work when it comes to revealing that humans are not as rational as we think we are. He won a Nobel Prize for this. And this is interesting. I want to point out his Nobel Nobel Prize, it was in economics. What we're talking about is so practical. This whole blameless thing is so practical. In this book right here, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, in in this book of his, he, he describes two different systems of thought that are happening in our brain, in our operating system. System one, he calls our animal mind, and it is fast, it is instinctual, it's emotional. And then there's system two, which is our rational mind, and that is slow and deliberate and logical. And guess which system, he says, it leads the other one, system one. And we ran into this. We, we did an anxiety series before we did our Blameless series in 2019, this whole series on anxiety. Here's a quote from a book we came across. Um, it's this book right here uh, during that series. It's, it literally says, don't feed the monkey mind. Um, and here's what, here's what she says. 
Um, again, she agrees with this whole idea of us evolving over time. Even from our earliest stage of life, we can perceive safety or danger in the facial expressions of our parents. We've always hunted and housed ourselves together in packs, so we watch out for each other. Our ancestors' social status within their families or tribe was crucial for their survival. In order to protect your social status, your monkey mind is always watching and listening to those around you, looking for signals whether you're respected, whether you're loved, whether you belong. If you're alienating your neighbors, irritating your friends and family, or are the subject of scorn in your community, even if you're not aware of it, the monkey reads the signal and sounds the alarm. When our brains believe that our self-image or our social status is threatened, instantly our brain triggers chemicals to be released that gear us up to fight or flight. And this was interesting. I also just read a week or so ago that along with those chemicals, um, there's also chemicals that can get released that are designed to help us cope with rejection. So you talk about an enticing drug. Blame, it's releasing these chemicals. We don't have to consciously administer them, and it helps us feel better in that moment. So you can see how this could be pretty addicting. But here, with, with a show of hands, with a show of hands, how many of you know that our primal blame instinct isn't always right? It is not always right. And also with a show of hands, how many of you say, when you're blaming someone or when someone's blaming you, you're not at your best? Show of hands, that right? We're not. We talked about this last week. The same response, the fight or flight thing, when you are blamed, that gets triggered. And so we are either spending all our energy defending ourselves or attacking somebody else. We're not at our best. Okay, so those who embrace the theory of evolution, get this though, they believe that creatures can evolve, that we can keep evolving. They believe that our human brain is capable of so much more than simply responding to these primal instincts. Not only do we have different sections of our brain that are capable of processing data in incredibly complex ways, it's better than that. We have these brains where we can physically alter them. We can physically alter the wiring. It's called neuroplasticity. We introduced it to, um, you to this last week. This is called Hebb's Law. Here it is in case you missed it last week. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So in other words, you start thinking the same thing over and over and over again. You are literally wiring your brain to make it easier for your brain to go that direction. We can physically transform our minds. We can physically renew our minds. If you know the book of Romans, that might sound a little familiar. We can renew our minds so that our brain's warning signals can actually be rerouted instead of just directly going into action, can get rerouted through our thinking parts of our brain so that we can make some conscious decisions about that. This is the whole basis for what's known as cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Through CBT, people are taught to change thinking patterns, develop new and better problem-solving skills. And this has been proven to be effective in everything from reducing fear, reducing stress, reducing anxiety and depression, to improving marriages and relationships, to overcoming eating disorders, and more. Now, we want to remember, our brains are trying to protect us. So let's help our brains. Let's help our brains, help us. Let's direct these primal instincts to our thinking centers. 
And when we do that, we open up new opportunities to respond. Here's how one marriage and family therapist put it. She said, you've got the capability to disrupt a system that your monkey has spent years refining, but it's getting you nowhere. In its place, you can discover a bigger world where the sky's the limit. We can retrain our brains to the point where when that temptation to blame comes, that temptation becomes a trigger for helpful thinking and healthier habits. One of the many exceptional resources that have come out since we did this series last is this one. (laughs) Just about, I think, in fact, everybody that I've talked to that has read this book or listened to John Acuff on the soundtracks concept, everyone said, this is great stuff. Such great stuff. Here's what he says. He says, broken soundtracks in our mind never evolve into new soundtracks on their own. Replacing your soundtracks is about identifying what soundtracks you've been listening to and then owning the responsibility for changing them. Hold on to that word responsibility because we are going to come back to that. But first, we just talked about what some folks believe about, well, actually many folks believe about the evolutionary process and how you trace that back and it goes back to blame. Now let's look at the world's best-known creation account. It's the one that I'm most familiar with, um, and uh, you can find it in the Christian Bible and the Jewish Torah. Now, whether this is literal or allegory is another important conversation for another day. But what I want to just show you today is how blame goes back to the beginning, not just for the naturalists, but also for Christians as well. We all agree that blame goes back to the beginning. So if you have your Bible with you, let's go back to the beginning of our Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. If you don't have a Bible at home, we um, encourage you, you can go right now, just hit pause, go to Bible.com, and they've got a great free Bible app that you can download there. All right, so here it is. Here's how the Bible opens up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, these two verses are loaded with meaning. And when I say loaded with meaning, I'm sure that you're going to be able to pick up all of this little fine print there on the camera. But in my study Bible, this is the ESV study Bible, these are the two verses I just read. All of the rest is just commentary on these two verses. This is loaded, loaded, loaded content here. So much meaning, so much richness there. In the verses that follow, the ones we just read, God speaks and his words create a world. And that world that is created by God's word is good. Look at how it plays out here in the verses ahead. And God said, and it was good. 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 Our creator we, we read how it opened up. Our creator brought forth light from darkness. He brought forth order from chaos. He brought life where there was no life. And he created this world filled with endless possibilities. So let's continue, uh, beginning with verses 26 through 31. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it wasn't just good. What does the scripture say? It was 
very good. After creating everything else, God created a man and a woman in his own likeness. And now he says, this is very good. What God has done with his words in creating this world was very good. He created an amazing world filled with light and life and endless possibilities. He created a man and a woman in his image. In addition to ensuring that they were well-equipped for meaningful work and perfectly paired, he also provided boundaries for their benefit. So Adam and Eve are set up for success. One of the things we talked about last week is two of our deepest needs are the need to feel competent, to have meaningful work and be able to do it, and to be loved. Which of those two things were in place for the first two people? Both of them. They're set up for success. They even have God-given guidance of how do you flourish. Well, the text adds this. This is interesting. In chapter 2, verse 25, it says that the first couple, they were naked and unashamed. There is nothing that they feel the need to conceal from the rest of creation, from God or any other living thing. All right, so that's what God's words do. Now what happens when the creatures start speaking? Let's take a look. I, I want to encourage everyone to read all of, well, read all of the Bible, but read all of Genesis 3. There's so much important content there. And when you do, pay really close attention to what God says and then what the serpent says that God said and what people say that God said. Our words create world. And you can here's the references. Genesis 3.1, look at what the serpent said. In Genesis 3.2, look at what the woman said. In Genesis 3.10, look at what the man said. When you look this up, notice how God's words get twisted and notice how things that God said got left out. Look for those two things. Again, God's word brings light. It brings life. It brings order from chaos. There's no shame. But what happens when they begin to twist the words? Look what happens when they begin to leave certain things out. Look what happens when they step outside these beneficial boundaries that the creator put in place. And as a side note, one day I made a note here. One, of the, one day I want to do a series on overcorrecting. And one of the ways I see overcorrecting play out is people have good hearts and they're like, hey, I want to make sure that we are not getting so locked into getting doctrine right that we miss the big picture and we're not caring for people and loving people and relating to people. And then what happens is they put that up and against sound doctrine. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible is clear. Sound doctrine matters and loving your neighbor matters. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And we tend to overcorrect one way or another. Was Jesus of Nazareth full of grace or was he full of truth? Yes, he was full of both. All right, let's go back to our text. Now we're looking at Genesis chapter 3 here. Uh, let's look at verses 8 through 9. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, this is after they went outside God's boundaries, uh, and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? All right, I want to unpack that just a little bit here. Consider the profound nature of those three words. Where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Yes. Yes. 
Did God know what had happened? Yes. In Hebrew, that word man and the word you are singular. What God does when he says, where are you? It's a very specific question directly to Adam. And notice that he doesn't just come with a lot of judgment or indictment. He asks a question directly to Adam. Where are you? He gives Adam an opportunity to tell the truth. When Adam gives an answer that minimizes his own contributions, God gets more specific. Verses 10 through 11. Adam said, hey, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then what does Adam do? He's got another chance here, right? He's got another chance. Just say what you did. But what does Adam do? He blames Eve and he blames God himself. Here's here's in his own words. Genesis 3.12. The man said, that woman who you, God, you gave to me, it's your fault. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault too. And so it begins. And so it continues. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And she said, it was the serpent that deceived me and I ate. The way that all of this plays out, this is a master class on what we're talking about here with the blame less project. We're going to try to remember to say this each and every week. This is not the blame never under any circumstances project. This is not the don't hold people accountable project. There were so many people that took a big sigh of relief. Like you almost could see it when I said that last week. Okay, good. What the serpent did was wrong. What Adam did was wrong. What Eve did was wrong. And the creator who was in a position to see that clearly, he graciously gave them a chance to own up to what they had done, but they didn't. And there were consequences. But it's really interesting. The master class here continues. You see that God doesn't close the door on reconciliation. Even as he describes the consequences, and again, I encourage you to look this up, get a good study Bible that can help unpack this. As he answers them, his words are embedded with hope that a Savior is going to come in the fullness of time. And what he does when he provides a covering for them that was better than the covering that they did, there's indications there that was the first time anything ever died for somebody else which is foreshadowing of the sacrifice he's going to make for us. It's it's beautiful. They're held accountable and God is initiating a way for these broken relationships to be restored. It's just beautiful. Well, right now what I want to do, we could go so many directions, but I want to circle back to our original conversation we're having today about this human brain. Whether you believe that the human brain evolved over millions of years or whether you believe it was designed by a loving creator who formed us in his image, you and I, I hope we can all agree, we got a very sophisticated mind. We've got this built-in alert system that works faster than the speed of thought that protects us in certain situations. And we've got this processing center that can help us interpret those signals. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Humans... We have a unique response ability. We are unique from all other animals in how we are able to respond. Remember that word responsibility that we highlighted earlier. Humans have this unique ability to consciously process and to choose from multiple responses. 
when we, our primitive instincts tell us what you should do is blame and you should cover up and you should twist words and you should leave things out. We've got a unique responsibility. We can physically rewire our brains to respond in healthier and more helpful ways. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down too. Words create worlds. Words create worlds. And how many of you know that our words create worlds too? They do. And I love that logo. Um, Mike, if you could fire that logo um, that our friends at Mocha created for us. I love this logo. I love how it's a speech bubble. I love that. Because that's where it all begins. It begins with words that first start in our minds and then words that eventually come out. And those words create worlds. Create worlds in our minds. Oh, here's what reality is. And it creates realities as we use our words to either build up or break down or heal or, or destroy. I love this quote by a retired Navy SEAL. He says this about our self-talk. He says, the most important conversations you're ever going to have are the ones you have with who? With yourself. Here's another great quote. This is from that soundtrack book, which I recommend for everybody. A plane can drop a bomb or food. A syringe can deliver poison or medicine. A stallion can start a stampede or win a race. The same is true with what? Our thoughts. You know, most of us, if we were to sit down and, and talk about our dreams, there'd be some commonality there. Most of us dream, we dream of living meaningful lives. We dream of having great relationships. Most of us dream of being able to not only care for our own needs, but to be able to help others too. And we live in a world that is filled with endless possibilities. Endless possibilities. There are new and exciting products to create. There are important problems that need to be solved. There is so much personal potential in every person, every person that can be unlocked. There are so many incredible people to meet, each of them bearing the very image of God. There's work that needs doing. There are relationships to be built. So let me ask you this question. What kind of world does blame create? Does it create a world where we're moving forward in those things? Or does it create the opposite? What kind of world do we build or destroy when words get twisted, important details get left out, when we step outside of God's beneficial boundaries? What good is left undone when we blame circumstance? What deeper levels of community could be experienced if we're not covering up and hiding? Like we often do. If you're taking notes, I might write this down. When we conform to this broken world, we contribute to the brokenness. We're able to respond. We don't have to do that. We can use our advanced thinking parts of our brains. Fight or flight thinking, it's designed to help us survive. If we don't retrain our brains and think in more advanced ways, we're never going to move from surviving to thriving. That question that the creator asked Adam, what a great question for us right now. Where are you? Where are you? Have you been stepping outside the creator's boundaries? Have you been twisting words or leaving important things out? Are you pointing fingers at others without looking in the mirror? Are you trying to cover up your shame? 
there's a better way. Some call it evolution. The Apostle Paul called it pursuing righteousness. Maybe we can all find common ground in these words from John Acuff. He goes this, there's three steps to change our thoughts from a super problem into a superpower. Retire those broken soundtracks, those broken ways of thinking. Replace them with new ones and then repeat them until they're as automatic as the old ones. We can do that. We can retrain our brains. It takes time, but it can be done. Let's use our unique God-given response abilities to think in ways that are helpful and healthier and to speak in ways that are helpful and healthier. And together, let's build the world we want to live in. Renewing our mind, it can do more than transform our own life. When we do this, we're joining God in his restoration work. That's what he does. Blaming less is a better way. So here's our series invitation. Let's retrain our brains. Let's reclaim our lives. Let's share our stories. And as we said last week, let's build an ark. What's an ark? An ark is a God-sized vision. Arks take time to build. And arks don't make sense to those who can't yet see why the work matters. It may take five years. It may take 10 years. But what if, and I'm, I'm serious about this, what if God could use this project to inspire and equip people to teach these truths in every state? What if? That's the vision behind the Blameless Project. More on that again in the weeks ahead. But what I want to do today, as we bring our time to a close, I just want to close with this illustration. So um, this right here has changed my life. This battery, this battery pack, let me share a little more with this power source. This power source changed my life. I am not great with engines. I'm not great with engines. I don't have the skill set, and I don't have a lot of discretionary time to, to learn it. And little engines take a lot of tinkering. A lot of tinkering, at least the ones that I've had in the past. And I was struggling. I was struggling to keep my gas mower and my gas leaf blower and my gas weed trimmer and my gas chainsaw all operational at the same time. So my friends at Bicewinger Hardware just down the road, in fact, from here, it's like just across the street, man, they introduced me to this better way, this big old battery. Now, these big batteries, big front-end investment, but now what do I got? I got one power source. I can plug this into my lawnmower. I can plug this into my leaf blower. I can plug this into my weed trimmer. And I even got a little chainsaw now that I can plug it into. It works so well. I'm an ambassador for these things. Not like a paid ambassador, but I tell everybody about this thing. Changed my life, you know? And here's why I'm telling you this. In the weeks ahead, I want to show you the difference it can make if you plug in this thing we're talking about today. You've got a unique responsibility. You can respond differently than Coco the Gorilla. If you plug that into your circumstances that you're in, you pause and instead of blaming, here's why I can't, here's why I can't, here's why I can't. If you plug in your responsibility, it's amazing. If you take your responsibility and you are in a fractured situation regarding people and who is not in a fractured situation, you plug your responsibility in there and instead of blaming, instead of fighting back, 
It's amazing what can happen. And here's the thing. I want to speak to to my friends out there who um, don't believe that there is a God and that all of this happened on its own. One of the things that we can tap into as believers, and it's not just wishful thinking, we're able to tap into a creator through whom all things are possible. And so we don't just bring our own responsibility. As we align with his plans and his purposes, the very, at least our holy texts say this, that the very power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us. And what a beautiful thing that is. And I've seen just incredible things happen through that. So next week, it's going to get fun because we're going to start now. This has been laying the foundation. We're going to start applying these things, starting next week with circumstance. We'll be talking about applying our unique responsibility to circumstance. Um, for those who like to read ahead, read the first chapters of Nehemiah. There's an impossible situation that God worked in and through because Nehemiah took his unique responsibility. And we'll look at what happened along with a bunch of other stories too. So we'll see you next week.